welcome to episode 62 of Board Gamers Anonymous. This week, our 2015 Tabletop Madness gets down to the Fab Four. Drew shouting from the tabletop, Daniel is analyzing the Dweamer, and Anthony and I solve the mystery of the undercover podcasters. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the episode, everyone. We once again bring you back to the can't possibly be named, but is extremely important to the universal fabric of everything that we do. Anthony, what actually are we doing this week? All right. It is time for Tabletop Madness 2015, the round of 16. This is round four, I think, that those first four matchups really throw it off. Um, But this is our second full podcast and the third feature, if you uh, have read the first blog post, which is currently uh, on the website. So... This week, we're going to run through the round of 16 and the round of 8 and set our final four games so that you, the listeners, can vote and tell us who the winner is for Tabletop Madness 2015. The revenge of of the return of the die. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we're using Tabletop Madness to be distinct from, well, we could call it Spring Silliness or Vernal Very Oddness or any other number of alliterative phrases that one might put together about, say, the time of year and mental states having to being sort of out of sorts. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. You brought your die with you. That's all that matters, right? Yes, you yes. Uh, Clarissa's die. here. Uh, Clarissa, <laughs> Clarissa decides it all. Right, that's... that's why you named it. Okay. Hey! Can you guys hear me from on top of the tabletop? Shouted from the tabletops. <laughs> Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. Drew, each and every week we tell you, you got to get down from the tabletop. We can hear you. Better than being under it. Okay. Is someone under the table? Is that is that an option right now? Or are we planning on going under the table? Under the table, man. We were under, under the blanket the... last week, so. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> From under the blanket to on top of the tabletop. Did, did we ever explain that? Does anybody really know that we were cowering under a comforter last week? Let's clarify. <laughs> we were using a comforter to block out ambient noise because we care that much about the sound of the podcast and because we wanted to cuddle. You listen. <laughs> it was really cold in Daniel's apartment. No, no. You know what? This was the first time all four of us had been recording together in the same room. So it was just a very bonding time for us it was so hot oh my god like like physically energy coursing through the air warm crackling of electricity yes <laughs> yeah that's not where i was going with that oh okay the temperature was hot under that blanket yeah there heat the lightning forming under the blanket or something we had to come up for air like every five minutes that was weird the things we do for our listeners now chris you actually took a photo you need to post that <laughs> I sent all the photos to Anthony so he could post them or blackmail Daniel, whatever he feels he's, you know, wants to do. That's fine. 
people have to see this because I, I don't want them. <laughs> I don't want listeners to just let their imaginations run wild. So let's post the photo or let them run wild. <laughs> well, like Maybe I said, we'll get some fan mail. Like I said, Anthony has the photos, and if he wants to post them, it's fine. Or blackmail, that's fine too. You know, either you way. Know okay, so. The fact that we recorded under a blanket last week, that's news item number one. People didn't know that. That's news to you. Uh, a couple quick uh, publishing of game notes and things. Um, Asthma Day, we've talked about many weeks in the past. Uh, seems like every week they're buying a new company. Um, they just made a distribution deal with Queen Games, pretty big company. They do Alhambra and Fresco. So um, there's not a purchase and nobody's buying anybody, but they're, they're linking up. Uh, to help distribute games here and in Europe. Um, big step forward for Asthma Day as they keep getting bigger. Dice Tower announced the third game in their Dice Tower Essentials line. Um, it's an unheard of game called Onitama. Onitama is an abstract game that people don't really know about, and I'm one who believes abstracts don't get enough love. And so I'm, I'm all for this. Let's, let's put it back into print and uh, show people they can have a lot of fun. With those abstracts. Another game that could be getting a bright new look soon is Agricola. Yui Rosenberg is playtesting uh, various combinations of cards for a new release in 2016. Uh, I guess he's going to try and straighten out all of these many decks that are, are coming out and just boil it down, get rid of the dead wood, and have a nice combined blended deck. Um, he's doing this on play-agricola.com. So if you want to check on over, you might be able to get into a game with the, the master himself. And this just in from Gamma Trade Show. Okay, from the Gamma Quadrant, the Game Manufacturers Association. Lots of fantasy flight news, which I'm not going to get into because I don't really care that much for the fantasy flight games. But, but we do. I know you do. <laughs> Me and Anthony are big fantasy flight fans. Tell yes, him, Anthony. Don't let are. him get away with that. Drew, have Maybe. you seen my shelves? Come on. <laughs> yes, Fantasy Flight. Wow. Like three shelves devoted to Exciting. them and, and all the money they've taken out of my wallet. And they have a lot of stuff coming out. More stuff than I have time to describe. But just keep your eyes peeled for more announcements from FFG. The one that I thought, thought more curious than anything was Steve Jackson, once again pushing the, the Munchkin brand ever forward into a new series of trading cards. And not just trading cards but perhaps some cards that can be used in the game some autograph cards sketch cards and my question is why am i supposed to be excited about this i i guess starting off john kovalik's artwork is so evocative of this D, &D world the parody the humor the puns everything that kind of goes along with it while people may not love the mechanics of Munchkin, you absolutely positively have to appreciate the amount of dedication, hard work, and love that goes into the game. And to have more cards that kind of elicit the fun of RPGs and tabletop Dungeons and Dragons gaming is something that's fun. And being able to get these rare pieces of artwork on cards might be something that actually I might be interested in. I'll, I'll have to see what the price point is for this. I own a good chunk of the Munchkin collection as it is already. And for me, you know, a good chunk of the time is just enjoying the artwork and the humor and the fun. And it's nice to have a, a game that's just all about making jokes and having this really cool, interesting tableau. So I'm not sure if this is going to be like a Magic the Gathering thing where all of a sudden cards are worth, you know, $20, $30, $400 each. But 
I don't know. Maybe they're taken into a new area. Maybe there'll be a comically humorous, pun-filled Black Lotus card that'll be worth, you know, $100,000 someday. So, Well, this could be the board game version of the Mars Attacks cards from from way back when. It's just fun to collect without any real serious intent behind it. I mean, is, is there might be a game behind this. Is there actually a CCG, a competitive game behind all of this? No, but uh, there are. There was mention that some of the cards in those decks could be used in the game. Okay. I'm, I'm open to that. I'll, I'll definitely pick up a pack or two. I picked up the Munchkin comics, so it might be something I might be interested in. Now, you mentioned Magic the Gathering. There was an interesting bit on NPR, um, actually an extensive uh, – let me see what the the radio show was. Um, mon- da, 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 da. Oh, it was on the NPR show Planet Money. They did a sixteen minute bit on Magic the Gathering as a financial thing, um, and talking about what Wizards of the Coast have done to prevent a bubble. The, the whole point of that was um, investment bubbles. Beanie Babies was a, an example that they used. People started collecting them and holding on to them for lots of money this is what was happening with magic the gathering people weren't playing them they were buying them to collect and hold and wizards of the coast was afraid there would be some sort of bubble and it would be a fad and people would just walk away and say i'm not dealing with this anymore so it went into great lengths to show what wizards has done to keep a lid on that to to keep the game moving forward and not letting people just turn it into some collecting fad well, we saw this with comic books. The comic industry was nearly destroyed by all these speculators going out buying these supposedly rare issues, which then Marvel and DC and other comic companies kind of mass produce these, you know, one-shot issues. Hologram Culver, this person dies, this person lives, this person has a special issue every month, and it infl- overinflated the market. The bubble did burst. Companies did you know, closed down, and as a fan of comic books, it ruined the comic industry for a very, very long time. And actually, it's only about now are things starting to pick up again. But you know, the day they killed Superman off was a bad day for comic book fans. <laughs> oh man! In more ways than one. Now you know, you mentioned comic book fans. It seems like every time you say something, Chris, it makes me think of something else. Oh, thanks, um, Drew. Well, comic books are starting to adopt this old TV guide habit of creating a variety of collectors' uh, covers. So um, I think the the worst example lately has been Archie Comics and their relaunch, and they're going to have all these different covers, and you're going to want to collect them all. Um, What I don't want to see that happen is in board games, where they start having different boxes that you have to collect. You mean like Abyss? Yeah, so there was already a game that did that, right? <laughs> I know. Well, guess what? Pandemic Legacy is hopping on that train by coming out with two different colors, blue and red, for their upcoming release. You know, they're going to preview in Gen Con and then go to a wide release in October. Two different colors. Now, they claim, Z-Man says that they're doing this so people can keep their campaigns separate. You know, you can have a blue campaign, blue box with some friends over there, and then on another night you can meet with his other friends and open up the red box and have a campaign there. But you know completists are going to want to buy both boxes, even if they only play one. Does this sound like a crass marketing tool, or does that make sense that you would want to differentiate your... Well, I think we've seen this with Kickstarter, where 
there's the regular box and there's the Kickstarter exclusive box. But this isn't no, but there's no difference whatsoever between these two. This is a different color. Just color, nothing yes. else. Is That's what I'm saying. Really? Yeah, Kickstarter does that. They'll put a foil sticker or the cover art will be different. I just ordered Viceroy through Kickstarter about about two months back, and there was a Kickstarter exclusive color cover for the box that you could only get through Kickstarter. I, I didn't care. I just want the game, but I don't know. I think board gamers are not as drawn to that because you'll see a lot of gamers bring their games in plastic bags and you know just card boxes and they don't really care too much about the box itself i do but they don't seem to z-man seems to be planning for the long run with this legacy you know risk legacy um people don't really talk so much about anymore they played it they're bored they moved on but you know that that z-man they're releasing this box as season one and they're going to have more seasons and they're going to have different colored boxes they may have even more down the road these guys are figuring how to leverage this. I guess they learn from from risk, and they don't want people forgetting. And there's one more item uh, where board games were in the news. Um, this time on NBC Nightly News, quite a quite a platform to hear our hobby being promoted. Um, last week they went to they did they finished up with a two minute spot. You know, finally tonight, one of those bits, and they talked about the how much it's growing. They spent a lot of time on Hasbro games, of course, talking to them, but you saw a lot of close-ups of games that we like. And uh, and they even gave a shout-out to Will Wheaton's tabletop series, half a million people watching that online. So every time some major news outlet speaks up about that, it just gives us another shot in the arm, like, we're doing something right. Maybe it's us. Maybe we're getting the word out and... We're having some good. We're doing some good, man. That's great. And that is all the news I got for this week. All right, Drew. Now get down, okay? Seriously. All right. All right. <laughs> and now, our acquisition disorders. Acquisition disorders? That's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded components. See? That's not too much. But maybe, I don't know, maybe you might need the expansion. Uh, well, this week for my acquisition disorder, uh, it's sort of a general acquisition disorder. Traditionally, when I've done D&D games or any sort of tabletop role-playing game, I've been sort of loath to use minis. I kind of like the, you know, the map of the mind sort of thing, moving more flexibly around an imaginary world. But more and more, I am finding myself drawn to using miniatures and terrain. And I have very little experience with this. I mean, I've played Warhammer 40K, right? So I've got experience with those sort of miniatures. And I have played campaigns where we used minis to some great effect. Uh, but now I'm, you know, I'm looking out there and I'm trying to figure out what set of minis would be the most useful to pick up. Uh, I'm definitely looking at the uh, Elemental Evil mini sets that have been produced recently. Though I do think if the name is any indication, I'm going to end up with a whole bunch of Elemental creatures, which might be kind of a narrow subset of the larger category of sort of essential D&D minis. Uh, so I'm going to leave this as I have a general acquisition disorder for a good set of role-playing minis. Uh, and I think I want to throw it to the audience, to our listeners, if any of you know of a good sort of 
essentials of role-playing, essentials of specifically a D&D-style role-playing game. Uh, so essentials are sort of a high-fantasy role-playing game miniature set. Let me know. Uh, put it in the comments below this episode. Post it somewhere on the website. It will get back to me uh, because I am in the market and I could use guidance from people who have purchased more miniature sets than I and know more about minis than I do. So that's me. Drew, how about you? Me? I uh, read an announcement recently, uh, in fact, just today, from a company, uh, Blue Orange Games. Uh, two years ago, they formed a partnership with a French publisher. So now we're getting a new pipeline of some really interesting European games. Um, and they, in fact, are starting... Blue Orange is uh, releasing what they call the European collection of gamer games. Really, really interesting, uh, sophisticated games. One of the ones in this European collection that I'm really interested in is called Armadora. And uh, it's an area control game. I love area control where you're putting down your pieces and you're trying to carve out uh, a section for yourself. Uh, In this case, the theme is dwarven gold mines. So you have to claim territory and then divides into two and you keep claiming more territory and dividing and you still have to finish the game with the the greatest strength and the most number of territories. Very simple concept. It made me think of Terra Nova, another area control game that I used to have. And uh, I, I would love to get a hold of this Armadora from blue orange games. Chris, please tell us. It's the game that's not to be named. It's DC comics deck builder game crisis expansion pack two. Now, we didn't really care for Pack 1 because there was a lot of problems with the co-op feature to it. And unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any new information as far as this pack doing something different. But being that it's an acquisition disorder, I'm going to kind of talk about this a little bit because it brings in the Black Ring of Power. We're talking about bringing the dead DC characters back to life. And honestly, that's the reason why I'm really interested in this. This Crisis expansion brings back that really outstanding Green Lantern. And maybe just at the very least to have those additional cards to be able to play those in a normal game of DC Deck Builder. Or maybe just once again, just try it for the very last time. Try the co-op mode here. But above and beyond that, I just really want the new cards and, you know, at this price, it might be worth it. How about you, Anthony? What do you got? All right. So it's baseball season. And uh, last week we talked about Baseball Highlights 2045, which I backed last year on Kickstarter. Um, there's another baseball game up on Kickstarter this week from Dice Hate Me, and that is Bottom of the Ninth. Uh, it's not a full-blown baseball simulation, which to my knowledge still doesn't really exist, at least not in a modern strategy board game. But it is taking another little microcosm of the game and turning it into a game. Uh, this time it's that bottom of the ninth tension in a baseball game. Um, it's a one to two player dice and card game. It, re- it looks kind of like just a one of those regular old uh, press your luck games, but I'm sure it's got a couple spins to it. It's a little different. Um, component wise, it looks awesome. It's a dice hate me game. Uh, it's got these awesome looking baseball card style, you know, vintage 1960s cards that you use as the players in the game. Um, comes with the game board. Uh, relatively affordable, you know, uh, pledge level, I think it's 20 bucks. So this is up right now as we record this for a couple more weeks. So you should have plenty of time to back it if you're a baseball fan. I have backed it and I'm looking forward to playing it. I think it's supposed to ship in October. So hopefully it arrives before the end of the season so that I don't have another baseball game <laughs> sitting on the shelf all winter like I did with bottom of the, or with uh, baseball highlights, but looking good. 
That's my acquisition disorder this week. So that's our acquisition disorders. Now on to the actual playing of games. We're going to talk about BJAs at the table. And now at the table with BGA. So for my at the table this last week, it's not really a board game or even really a game game, but I'm always looking for ways to bring what I love about gaming into my everyday life. And one of these ideas that people have been batting around for a while is the idea of sort of gamifying your to-do list, right? These sort of role-playing games where you complete tasks and get experience points and get gold and get pets and gear and all sorts of things to sort of motivate you to move forward and play along and sort of do the stuff you're supposed to do in the first place. Use those things that make the games that distract you from doing what you're supposed to be doing (laughs) uh, fun to actually make you do what you want to do. Uh, And usually I have found these to be pretty pathetic, but recently I started one called Habit RPG, which is free to play, though you can sign up for a subscription. And I decided to subscribe because I liked it so much. Um, And at first it was sort of a so-so sort of standardish game, right? You knock off tasks, you get experience, you mark off your dailies, you get bonus points, whatever. Uh, And then I got my friends to join and we formed a party. And as soon as we formed a party, everything changed because the Fire Nation attacked. No, um... (laughs) What happens when you're in a party is you can do quests together, and some of these quests have bosses. And what bosses will do, if you did not complete your daily to-do list or your daily tasks, right, so to-dos and dailies are separate lists, but if you don't complete both of them, it will hurt everyone in the party in proportion to the amount of tasks you left undone. So what ends up happening is this sort of social reinforcement system where my friends and I have been like pressuring each other gently to keep doing our task to finish what we need to get done and also as you get higher level right you're more useful to the party so people are encouraging you to be like oh yeah you want to work on that habit make sure you do that make sure you do that that would be great and so it makes this uh, powerful peer support network of i mean you could call it peer pressure if you wanted to be a little grimmer about it Uh, but it really is pretty fun surprisingly fun and remarkably charismatic and really just a good way to take care of business uh of to-do lists it's the best and it's not that bad of a game honestly so i would definitely suggest that all of our listeners check out habit rpg i'm sure we all have stuff we want to get done that we don't get done uh you guys should join too it's a it's a fun time interesting all right yeah i'll check it out sign us up i'm a huge productivity geek (laughs) <laughs> I have my I have to do lists everywhere. This is this yeah. is the way to do I've it. I've paid man. a lot of money for high end to do lists that I just don't use. <laughs> love the concept. Yeah, it really yeah. is remarkable. Awesome. Uh, for my at the table last week, uh, I I dug deep into John McCallion's collection to um, pull out an expansion, a Carcassonne expansion that we hadn't played before, Princess and the Dragon, and. I got to tell you, it just made me revisit the whole concept of Carcassonne expansions. I'm just not crazy about any of them because they don't add enough to the, the base game to really make the make it worth the bother, to make it worth the additional time or the additional players. It made me have a greater appreciation for the standalone Carcassonne games that they've created in its image, like Carcassonne South Seas, awesome game. I love that because it's not dependent on expansions. And I think, you know, if, if you want a, a twist in your Carcassonne experience, try these standalone games and don't, don't focus so much on the expansions. I think they're just a lot of work. Um, people who loved the game and played it a lot wanted something different, but it's, it, it doesn't add enough different to the game to make it worthwhile. So 
Um, no to Carcassonne Princess and Dragon expansion, but yes to all the other cool Carcassonne games out there. I still like them. <laughs> well, a game that I was able to get to the table is called Glen Moore. Now, let me read you some of this rich history about this game and how it's going to invoke an era, in particular, the leadership of a 17th century Scottish clan looking to expand its territory and its wealth. The success of your clan depends on your ability to make the correct decision at the opportune time, be it establish a new pasture for your livestock, growing grain for your production of whiskey, selling your goods on the various markets, or invest in the cultivation of special places such as locks and castles. Okay, now forget that because it's basically a Euro game. It's a pace it on theme. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's 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 pure Euro. It's a light to medium weight game. It has a rondelle. So this is really what you need yeah. to know. And rondelles are awesome. Yeah. And what's really interesting <laughs> about this rondelle is you'll be picking territory tiles from the rondelle. And depending on when where and when you pick the tile, that will adjust the entire rondelle. And that will be the length of the game so if you jump ahead things kind of move ahead a little faster and based upon where you place that tile it influences your board now you also also have chieftain tokens but you don't need to know about that they're basically meeples right we all know about meeples so it's a light fun game with kind of a suburbia kind of aspect based upon how you place the tiles and being able to produce resources it's it's a lot of fun and this is this has got to be a buy if you're a Euro gamer, you really do want to pick up Glenn Moore. Anthony, what about you? What do you got? All right. I have not played anything in the last couple of weeks, but one game we got to the table uh, the last time we got together. And Chris, you already talked about this one, but I'm going to talk about it anyways because I didn't get to play it then, is Concordia. <gasps> I know. This is the podcast about games that are not supposed to be named. Rehash. <laughs> Take two. Hashtag. The only one that matters. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Concordia, we got to play, um, all three of us, I think you were LARPing, Drew, but the rest yeah. of us played Concordia, and, uh, this was a game that I'd been wanting to try out, but honestly, it wasn't, like, super psyched for, just because I didn't know a lot about it, mm-hmm. but I wish I had, because I would have gotten to the table sooner. This game is amazing. It's quite the mishmash of very familiar, uh, mechanics, and I think Chris talked about this three or four episodes back, so I'm not going to run through all the mechanics of it, but... It has all these different elements that I really like in games like this. There's there's that set collection aspect. There's the gathering of resources that you can then use to do various things. There's the cards for different kinds of victory point conditions. Um, you're building routes throughout the, the world there. Lots of cool stuff. It was a lot of fun. I had no idea how I was doing. I actually turned out to win the game quite handily, actually, based on the no idea what I was doing. All right, go ahead and rub that in. It's a great yeah. strategy, the no idea. <laughs> it works, yeah. It usually works for first Daniel timers. also didn't know, and he came in a close second, so yeah. it was good. Um, <laughs> but it was cool. It was, we had a lot of fun. It's definitely a game I want to play again. We compared it pretty heavily to Power Grid at the time. And some people really don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one element of the game. It's not the complete game. That's not what we're saying. There's just one small element, but okay. It is in some ways like Power Grid, and in many ways not. (laughs) It reminded me of Power Grid. Except for when it didn't. Except for when it didn't. (laughs) It is, except for when it is not. The boxes are the same shape. Uh There you go. See, and not many games have this shaped box. Just saying. Okay. Which actually makes me want it, because it'll fit on my shelf on that same stack of Power Grid boxes. Oh, very (laughs) good. The three Power Grid boxes I now have. Because, you know, at a certain point, as you're storing these games, and we've talked about this a lot, 
eventually you're running out of space. So you only have X amount of space, so the game needs to fit that <laughs> that square footage. I have a power grid shaped space on my shelf. Concordia, you're up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think this game might be a buy for me. I want to play it again. You know, just make sure it wasn't um, fluky. Sometimes you know you have fun when you win a game, but I was having fun before I realized the score. And you don't score to the very end, which is why I knew it was a good game. Mm-hmm. You know, everything about it was very smooth. Even if I wasn't quite sure how it all came together in the end, it was just fun to do. Your power grid skills came in handy. Yeah. Even though it's not like power it's grid. It's not like power grid at all, <laughs> except when it is. <laughs> that's Concordia. Awesome game. Super glad I got to play. All right, so that's everything for our At the Table. Late at night, you find yourself perusing the ancient libraries of forgotten games gone by, and you find amongst that library a tome, an ancient tome of an arcane and strange role-playing game system. What do you do? You analyze that dreamer! That's right. It's Analyze the Dreamer, the segment where we think way too hard about role-playing games and how we should play them. Uh, today, I'm going to be continuing my discussion of D&D 5e because it's still on the mind, and I promised you once upon a time that I would review all of the classes. Now, last time I had looked at the cleric, and I had voiced some concerns that, well, the cleric, especially the war cleric and the tempest cleric, is really, really tough seeming in this version. And I was a little bit worried that, uh, given that and some of the ways that leveling works in 5e, that maybe the paladin wouldn't be tough enough, right? It wouldn't be tough enough to be better than the cleric in a palpable way. I was wrong. <laughs> well, I'm glad you can admit the that. Paladin, <laughs> the paladin is extremely tough. Uh, and they get a lot of really useful tricks here. One thing they get, of course, is some more hit points over the cleric, which makes them slightly better suited at getting face-to-face with enemies. Uh, they also get to pick fighting styles, which is something that is introduced uh, in D&D 5e. There are versions of it in earlier games, but in this version, right, these are uh, sort of almost like feats, but sort of weak feats, because D&D 5e has really powerful feats. Uh, that give you certain bonuses for fighting in a certain way, right? Fighting with a great weapon or uh, fighting defensively while you're wearing heavy armor, that sort of thing. And this makes them a pretty tough combatant. Even further, we get the classic smite move, which the clerics can replicate in some way, but only at mid to high levels. Uh, And that replication disappears once you get to mid to high levels with the paladin who gets a constant natural smite on their melee weapons uh, which is hugely impressive all of this is to you know goes to say yeah paladins are pretty tough they get extra attacks they hit hard just like you'd expect a paladin to do Uh, so the paladins are you know a great fighting class they have a great deal of martial prowess but the thing that really makes the paladin the paladin is their sacred oath And 5e offers us three different kinds of sacred oaths we can take to give us three different, very distinct-feeling kinds of paladin. Uh, The first is the Oath of Devotion, which is pretty much what the paladin always is. It's the the lawful good, straightforward, I am here to be honest and brave and loving and honorable, committed to my duty in all circumstances, that sort of character. So if you want to play your classic paladin, that's who you want to be, an Oath of Devotion. If you want to go a little bit off the beaten path, you can take the Oath of Ancients, which is a dedication to the forces of nature, 
which is kind of cool. It's this weird mix of paladin and ranger and druid in a way, which is a really unique feel and something I would talk about more if I weren't really, really wanting to talk about the Oath of Vengeance, which is pretty much the Punisher as a holy man. You get abilities where you can call out individual enemies, gain benefits on them, and sort of challenge them to a duel. And I think this is a really cool idea when you picture it on you know, on top of the mage's tower facing against the dark wizard who slew your entire brotherhood, right? You stand and say, you are mine, and point at them, and they have no hope of escape as you bear down upon them with your sacred blade. It gets a little weirder, however, when you remember that not every D&D battle is fighting against a sworn enemy that slew your brothers. It gets a little bit strange when you're like, you, goblin number 438C. <laughs> I hate you, especially. <laughs> and so I think it's a really cool archetype, but I do wonder how it would fit into like mass battles. Now, I do know some DMs don't like doing mass battles, but I think they have a place. But just the idea of this high-level, holy warrior, punisher paladin who points at some poor low-level mook and just says, I'm going to kill you. Just you. Especially you. No one around you. You. But in the end, the paladins are a really good fighting class. They have a touch of that divine magic casting that makes them different from the fighter, right? They're not going to be quite as good in a martial fray as the fighters will be because fighters really are something special here. Uh, and that's what I'm going to be talking about next week. But they have a lot of really cool options, a lot of defined by the oaths. I'd probably play Oath of Ancient myself just because there's something cool about the idea of being a paladin of nature. Uh, and contra my earlier worries, they could probably whip a cleric in close hand-to-hand -hand combat, right, if casting were off limits. So I really do think that they managed to make themselves significantly different there. So that's what I know. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, Punisher class is kind of a – that's a good pitch, man. They should change the name. <laughs> Punisher. <laughs> Daniel, way back in my day when all we knew was advanced D&D, &D, paladins were extremely rare. They made it really, really hard to, to achieve that class. Um, is it fairly common, fairly easy nowadays in five edition five? Yeah, it depends on how your DM construes certain commitments of faith. So if you break your oath, right, if you do something bad enough, you can stop being a paladin and become what used to be called a blackguard. I, there's, huh. I can't remember the name for it now, but essentially a fallen paladin. So you can, uh, you can be stripped of that. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Well, one thing they did in 4E is they took away the idea of stripping paladins of their power because one of the problems is you'll be level 15, you'll make a mistake, and suddenly you're a level 8, maybe. Being generous, right, you're a level 8. While the rest of your party is fine and can do whatever they want. So you don't want to take away their power necessarily, but you could offer them a new way to direct it. And paladins, I think, almost more than any other class require the DM to be flexible and creative when interpreting the will of the gods and providing a robust divine system, right? Clerics, they care about what God says and that sort of thing, and their powers originate from the gods, but the paladin, right? The paladin's supposed to be almost the zealot, right? They are the holy warrior. They are the hammer of God, and if they do something wrong, there's some interesting narrative possibilities there, right? The reconciliation quest. 
but you've got to be careful not to just smack them down with the hammer of God because otherwise it's a really terrible class to play. Is there any information or lore about the relationships between the clerics and the paladins based upon their religion, if they have a shared religion, if they have how the classes kind of work together or the hierarchy? Is there anything to that in uh, D&D 5? It's going to depend on what divine system you use and how you feel like handling it. Uh, traditionally, you could be a paladin of pretty much anybody. It is a little weird when you have things like a paladin of Pelor, who is the god of healing. It's okay. Uh, I could see why clerics would exist and even might be armed, but having the guy run out with a sword in one hand and an axe in the other yelling, For life! I'll heal you with my sword! That doesn't quite track super well. Now, if you're creative with it, there is a place for them, right? Uh, undead hunters, for instance, would be a good place to have your uh, Halor paladins uh, because that's their sort of mortal enemy. Mm-hmm. But it it is up to interpretation, and I would encourage people to interpret it in the way that their characters and players find most interesting. If they think that the clerics should be the dominant group in their religion and no one else is, you know, controlling this religion or involved in this religion, I think there's an argument to be made for letting players make decisions that relate to their character as much as possible without making the world inconsistent. That way you make sure that the religious system they're in is one that they're interested in, one that they think will produce cool conflicts, right? There is something fun about playing the, I just want to help people cleric in a bureaucratic militant order, so on and so forth. All right, so that's Analyze the Dweamer. Now on to our feature. Anthony, take it away. All right. It is week two on the podcast of Tabletop Madness 2015. This week is the round of 16, followed by the round of eight. But first, we have to square off four matchups, eight matchups, I'm sorry, between 16 games that reached the top of our bracket to date. Uh, If you didn't listen to last episode, you missed a lot of amazing die rolls, some angry responses to those die rolls (laughs) some of us got along better with the die than others um it was it was very tense under that blanket this week we'll see how many dice rolls die rolls we have to go to to uh decide between our top 16 games as we whittle it down to eight all right so quick recap of how this works we have four brackets one for each type of game that we kind of picked out here we're all pulled from the top 100 games on board game geek along with a few listener submissions and some of our own nominations top favorite games but for the most part about 75 percent of the games we pulled in out of 68 were from the top 100 and that we as a group had played at least twice between us uh so what we have left then is the euro bracket we have four games there the americlash bracket the card and dice bracket, and the gateway game bracket. Some interesting matchups last week, along with a couple of upsets that the die helped with a little bit. And uh, you can read all of those. You can listen to it on the on the website. We have the round of 64 on the website if you want to see all the original matchups. And the episode 61 has our round of 32 matchups with the aforementioned die and blanket situation. But this week... <laughs> that's, that's a whole new mechanic. We, we have to work that into a game, the die and blanket mechanic. 
But this week, we're going to go ahead and move forward with our 16 games, uh, starting with the Euro bracket. And just at the very top of this list, we have a couple of uh, interesting games uh, in terms of their matchup. Number nine, Suburbia. And number five, Power Grid. Well, Suburbia. Okay, how that knocked off number one Terra Mystica, I do not know. However, <laughs> Suburbia's up against Power Grid. I don't think it's going to be nearly as close. It, it all comes down to the pros and cons of Power Grid. Con, it's too easy to be blocked out on the map and to fall behind. And once you're behind, there's no way you can win that game. So it's really hard. But the pros of Power Grid, and this is what really sells it for me, it's a great primer on market forces. There's root building, basically, which you're trying to connect all your power plants together, and uh, the auction bidding for the different power plants, and then the buying of the, the energy pellets. Great, beautifully balanced game as far as the market goes. Uh, I just wish I wouldn't lose so badly every single time I play, but I'm voting for it anyway. I am um, voting for Power Grid. Well, uh, I'm going to have to go straight against you there. Uh, I'm going to have to vote for Suburbia. Now, I do like both of these games, and that's probably going to be something that's true for all of us for almost all of the following matchups because they're all excellent games. And it's hard for me to quantify exactly what it is that draws me to Suburbia over Power Grid, but there's just something about the turn-to-turn play of Suburbia that I find more engaging than I do Power Grid. I find it really easy to kind of check out in Power Grid, it's almost got a little touch of that Monopoly sort of, okay, I've got the rhythm now. I'm sort of, ooh, right, falling back. But Suburbia, because you've got new tiles coming up, because of the way you purchase things, because of the way your place interacts with other places, right, your little settlement, right, all of that keeps me very engaged constantly. There's not a lot of downtime. There's not a feeling of disconnect at any point. And I feel like Power Grid just doesn't do that as well. So for me, it's suburbia for that constant feeling of engagement. As Daniel said, both of these games are outstanding. Both of these games are well-deserved to be in the top 100. There are so many good things to say here. While Power Grid is about powering the great cities of America or Germany or the numerous, numerous other maps, suburbia does something a little different. It allows you to build those cities up in unique individual ways. And when I'm thinking about this category, you can go either way because both of these games are great Euros. And Power Grid obviously has been around for a very long time and has earned its position. For me, I think Suburbia stands out a little bit more because Suburbia allows you to have different styles of gameplay based upon the goals, based upon the market that comes out, based upon what tiles are in play, and how you kind of organize your suburbia, especially with the expansion, which adds the borders. So now your suburbia can take a radically different look. I think when we played suburbia in the past and we look at our each individual suburbias, you can almost see the cities that they depict. So I think by the fact that suburbia takes Eurogaming to the next level, opens up your imagination, allows you to see a bigger world than just what's there on the board. I'm going to go with Suburbia. Come on, Anthony. Be the voice of reason. Yeah, you all know what I'm going to vote for here. It's (laughs) got to be Power Grid. I have multiple versions of this game. I have all the expansions. I have this collector's box that I bid on at an auction. And who does that for a half-empty box? (laughs) Um, I have the deluxe edition. I have 
anything that goes with this game I have, including as soon as they go up, the custom tokens that Jamie Stegmeyer is working on for his next treasure chest. I'm going to buy that too. <laughs> um, Power Grid's an awesome game. I love Suburbia and I play it on my iPad all the time. I would play it in person if someone had it. Um, you mentioned the expansion. Power Grid has half a dozen expansions, all of which add something new to the game. So, gotta be Power Grid. Daniel, roll that die. All right. Wait, wait, have we established the ground rules? What the results are? What they're gonna say? Even odd, odd goes to the first option, which in our listing is Suburbia. Even goes to the second option, which is in our listing is Power Grid. Now, since we're recording on Skype and no one else can see the die, don't be surprised if everything I want to happen happens today. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know? It's odd. Uh, it's I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Move this the camera. Is, yeah, show it. <laughs> That's whatever. You can pick up the die. <laughs> it was a one, which is an odd number. Therefore, Suburbia is the once and future uh, king of the Euro. Well, not really. We're not actually quite there yet. Once in future... Contender? Lesser Duke? <laughs> Baron? Baron? It's a barony. <laughs> All right. So that is our first matchup in the Euro bracket. Suburbia ekes it out against Power Grid. Next up, we're going to match up two more games, uh, the winner of which will go up against Suburbia in our Euro bracket final. This one, it is number two, Caverna, versus number 14, the underdog here, Alien Frontiers. What do you guys think? You know, this is a lot closer than it seems, 2 versus 14. Um, of all the, yeah, yeah, don't be shaking your heads, no. For me, this was the toughest because I love Alien Frontiers. It was the, uh, the first and best dice placement game. Um, and I think it's beautifully balanced, one of the most balanced games I've ever played. Um, but Caverna is such a vast improvement on Agricola. It really makes it so easy to, to get into uh, whereas Agricola and all its many decks of cards was just a slog sometimes for me. Uh, that, you know, Caverna is, is so close to being a perfect game that I have to vote for it, even though I love Alien Frontiers. Tough choice. It breaks my heart, but it's got to be Caverna. With significantly less sadness in my heart, I second Caverna. <laughs> I think the gap is a little bit bigger than Drew does. Alien Frontiers, fine game. Caverna, one of the best games on the market, period. I, I think that the gap is rather significant, so I'm absolutely confident in saying Caverna. I own both of these games. I enjoy both of these games. I own Kingsburg, which is the predecessor for Alien Frontiers. Both games, you have an outstanding time when you play them. I think the difference comes down for me... When you play Alien Frontiers, there's going to be a lot of AP. There's going to be a lot of downtime. And that's also true about Caverna. But the AP with Alien Frontiers is in the mechanics. You you have to wait to your turn to see what the roles took effect and what things are blocked out. Whereas in Caverna, the AP is about how are you going to build this outstanding engine it has all of these tiles, and yes, maybe a tile's taken out that you want, but it has so many choices. You can dig into that cave. You can build that farm. You can have animals everywhere. You can go questing. There is so many opportunities here. And the thing that people really have a problem with when it comes to Euro games is if you make that one mistake, think, you know, Agricola, the game is over and you have to spend two hours lamenting that one tragic error 
Caverna allows you to really dream and really build a civilization of dwarves that is yours. So Caverna wins out because of all the options, all the possibilities, and stays a true classic Euro. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so that is a, a but, unanimous but, vote for Caverna. But we still want to hear what you have to say, Anthony. Even now though it doesn't matter. It. it doesn't matter, but we want to hear <laughs> Caverna is an awesome game. Anything that makes me forget how much I dislike Agricola deserves to win, especially against a game of Alien Frontiers, which I don't actually like very much. Caverna was by far and away the winner of this, even before I saw what it was up against. So, <laughs> done. Moving on. Uh, Suburbia versus Caverna in the final, but we'll get back to that in just a minute. First up, though, is the Americlash uh, final four games in this bracket. First Number one, Twilight Struggle versus number four, Dead of Winter. Uh, I'm a big fan of Twilight Struggle, but let's just say it's the greatest niche game, niche game, whatever you want to call it, in existence. But it's a niche. It just is small and specific, and you got to be, it's almost like a war game sort of thing. You got to be, your head has to be there to love it. Dead of Winter really appeals to a broader demographic, and it has so much more to offer your average gamer. Um, it's because it has really a bit of a role-playing aspect to it, where you're taking on a character, and you have to you have to really play that character well, whether you're a traitor or not, keeping in mind uh, the various uh, motivations that you have going for you. It's not, I'm not talking about, when I say it's role-playing, it's not a character playing like an RPG, but it's more of a, a pandemic-type role-playing where you really have to take that role you're playing seriously, invest yourself in it. Um, I, I really got excited playing it. I'm excited to be able to play it again someday. So that's why I'm voting for Dead of Winter. Yeah, I'm going to be seconding you here, Drew. Uh, I, I think it's a pretty strong decision for me in favor of Dead of Winter. Again, Twilight Struggle, like we said last time, I mean, it is the perpetual absolute number one on Board Game Geek. It will never fall from that position sometimes, or so it seems. But Dead of Winter came out of nowhere and is rocketing up that list. And Dead of Winter, if not a better game, is more fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would argue it's probably a better game, too. But if you want to bring people in, right, Dead of Winter will sit from new players to pros. Twilight Struggle will make the new players never return your calls again. <laughs> uh, you know, Dead of Winter is... And I, okay, I don't like zombie games generally, but I found a simple solution to this problem. Is I just think of Dead of Winter as the only zombie game out there. There are other games that have zombies in them, but this is the only zombie game. It's the only one that focuses on things like zombie horror survival, right? Or about man turning against man, these things that the zombie is supposed to be. Right? It's the only one that gets that right. Uh, so instead of Winter is so charismatic so complex it's the best and perhaps only true semi-cooperative out there i just can't find it in my heart to vote against it i mean twilight struggle it's a classic but it's it is a chore sometimes <laughs> dead of winter is i think just much more charismatic much more fun and ultimately in my opinion a better game well what we're talking about here is two games that epitomize the cold war right so 
whether it's the Americans versus the Ruskies or the last bastion of humanity fighting against the zombies in the cold, cold winter. So when it comes to that struggle between you and the other, how do you face that? Now, both of these games do an outstanding job in their own little world to depict that type of strategy and tactics and the mechanics are great. And as Daniel said earlier, it's hard to argue about or against any of these games. They do so many things right. That being said, if I'm going to look for a game to really give me that feeling of the challenge at a higher level, I don't think that you could get higher than being able to face down your other players around you, have to cooperate with them, but know that each and every one of them has a mission goal that will pull away from that joint mission. And then possibly, if not one or depending on the scenario, there are real betrayals that are going to go on. And, you know, you have to work together. You have to work against each other, which is kind of true about the Cold War, too, with our allies and such in the on our history. But nonetheless, it's got to be Dead of Winter. Plathead Games did an outstanding job here. This is a game that I do believe unless there's a better theme in the future, will probably also cement itself on the top 100. I'm kind of hoping there's a better theme because I'm still not very interested in this game. <laughs> um, uh, I do like Twilight Struggle quite a bit, and I don't think it's nearly as dry as you guys make it sound, although compared to Dead of Winter, I'm sure it is. Um, <laughs> it's all relative in the uh, face-to-face. But I will concede Dead of Winter was a great game. I am excited to see what he does in terms of other themes with the same system. Um, Still not super psyched about this particular one, even though I recognize how strong and impressive and unique this new design is. Um, But I want to see that not only refined, because of course he'll refine it and improve it, as happens to all games over time, but married with another theme that I can be more excited about personally. I would agree with that too. Absolutely. The crossroad system is so promising, and I can't wait to see it expand. So that is a pretty strong, another unanimous vote, Dead of Winter? Well, let's no, just I see. voted for Twilight Struggle. Oh, okay, you did. I couldn't tell. You were kind of, you are saying such no, too conceding. many nice things there. Okay, no, no. okay. I didn't want to be a jerk and be like, Twilight Struggle is great, Dead of Winter is stupid. <laughs> but you are the lone voice in the wilderness, Anthony. I am, I am. He's the, he's the traitor. <laughs> Be careful, Anthony. It's cold out there. Really cold. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's Dead of Winter, number four, upsetting our number one seed in the AmeriClash bracket, Twilight Struggle. Next up, we have a couple of high seeds. Number 10, Kemet, versus number 11, Cosmic Encounter. Okay, by high seeds, you mean big numbers, not highly Big numbers, yes. Yeah, big numbers. This was not a happy matchup for me because I think both games are deeply flawed. Kemet can can take a long time. It's a lot of AP, very AP heavy. I do like it because it's like a really complicated risk, but there's a lot of reading of little monsters and what they can do and powers and just way too much AP, even though I like it. To, to be in the final 16, though, you really got to be good in neither of these. Cosmic Encounter is flawed too because it, it's extremely random. Random what 
choice of races you have at the beginning, random what cards you're given, and you got to cycle through and, and what cards your so-called partners have to help you or your opponents. It's I like it because it's almost like a party game. You get a bunch of people, and it's it's a true semi-cooperative game. Sometimes you're helping each other. Sometimes you're hindering. It's a blast. It's always moved along quickly, and I'm happy with that. So Cosmic Encounter for me. Uh, so at first, I was going to vote Cosmic Encounter. It, it's a great game. I, actually, I'm more positive on both of these games than I think you are, Drew. I think they deserve to be here. They deserve to be where they are. Uh, but really, when I searched inside of my soul, I realized that the reason I wanted to vote for Cosmic Encounter is I wanted to vote against Kemet because yeah. it knocked Defenders of the Realm out. Yeah. And that's a personal favorite of mine. But if I'm really honest about my play experience and enjoying it, I love Kemet. I love the tableau building. I love the investment system where you can sort of slowly build up powers, build up uh, more capabilities, build up the ability to build up faster, right? It's a very complex uh, investment structure hidden in this game where you can build in all sorts of crazy and cool ways. And when you do what makes a huge difference to your overall success in doing this, right? Because other people can take these limited resources, uh, the, the little tiles, that sort of thing. Uh, so for me, I'm going to have to go Kimmet. I really do love this game. Again, it has been on my to-buy list for a very long time. Uh, and I will do my best not to hold against it that it has the blood of Defenders of the Realm on its hand. <laughs> <laughs> so Kimbet for me. Along it, that logic, I have to vote against ev against everything Drew votes for because he keeps knocking out my Lord of the Rings games. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for me, uh, I think Kemet's a fantastic game as well. I voted for it when it was up against Cyclades, and I like Cyclades a lot more than I think Daniel does. Um, Not but... a hard thing to do. <laughs> exactly. I know. I, I made a very strong statement there. Uh, Kemet's an awesome game. I have a lot of fun with it. But Cosmic Encounter for me is one of those quintessential Americlash style feeling games. Um, you know, Drew says it's very random. It is extremely random, but I think that's a lot of fun, especially with the way the game tends to play out at the very end where you have no idea who's going to win or how many people are going to win or who's going to get mad and storm off. And um, It manages to do the randomness very well without any dice, and yet the game can be different every single time you play it. You know, and not necessarily because of the randomness, because of the sheer volume of different, you know, races and options in the game. So Cosmic Encounter for me is, you know, one of those games that I would love to have at the table, you know, as frequently as possible. Kemet, I think, is more um, not necessarily an experience game, but I don't I wouldn't see myself pulling it out every weekend. Uh, definitely have a lot of fun with it, but I'm going to go with Cosmic Encounter. You still haven't made up your mind, have you, Chris? Oh, well, you know what? Let me interject while you're thinking. It's curious that both of these games are card-based combat. You think of Ameritrash with conflict. Let's roll the dice and see who wins. But it's all on hand management, which I think is a, a unique way of bringing something Euro into a Ameritrash, Ameritheme game. Both of these games deserve to be here. They deserve to be numbered amongst the greatest Americlash games that are out there for so many reasons. Cosmic Encounter does so many things right. The unique alien races, I think, is one of the things that really truly stands out for me. When you play an alien board game, what you see, I would say, probably about 90% of the time is a rehash of Star Wars or Star Trek or some sort of IP that you're very familiar with because the designers have not taken the opportunity to be bold enough to try out new alien creations and new alien powers. 
when you play Cosmic Encounter, even if it's just the base set, you're getting an enormous number of aliens and alien powers. The artwork is outstanding. The component quality, especially in this new version, is great with the little flying saucers. They stack very nice. You have the planets that are there to be kind of put into play. The expansions are enormous. You can play that game until the end of time and probably not play every alien combination because uh, there's I think there's several hundred now at this point. <laughs> at least it seems that way. It's also great as an Ameritrash game or Americlash game because you actually have the opportunity to bring in other players at the table to either support you or to support who you're attacking. Wow, this is a really hard one. And then Kemet does so many things right, too. As Daniel was saying, it does have the blood of Defenders on the Realm on it, but it also has the blood, and I know Daniel's not going to love this, but it has the blood of Cyclades, a true strategic and yet tactical game, a war game, a board, a map, a old-time traditional risk type of game where you're trying to knock out the other opponent's pieces and capture territory, and yet it has some Euro elements to it. Depending where you capture, it has a special ability. How you build a tableau of special powers is really interesting and dynamic. The artwork on the tiles is great. The miniatures are great, which is also a classic kind of uh, Americlash type of element. The board is awful. I don't know why the board's so bad, but it really is very bad. But yet the board does flip over so you can kind of play with the right number of players. This is an impossible call to make, but I'm going to go with Kemet. Just because I think the miniatures do squeak it out, it does invoke a real theme. Clarissa, what do you say? Clarissa, we'll decide it all. Let's find out. That is five. An odd number. So our victory goes to the first listed, which I believe is Kemet. Is Kemet. Kemet. Daniel's cheating. I'm yeah. showing you the die. Last week you I had turn it any way you want when you pick it up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is, I mean, technically true. I, I swear. Scout's honor. Take a photo of it and send it but to I can us. turn it before Tweet I do. <laughs> I'm being honest. I promise Clarissa would never lie. So direct those angry emails, not at the die at BoardGamersAnonymous.com, but at Daniel at BoardGamersAnonymous.com. And I will proceed to not answer oh them. Oh, my God. I haven't checked that. I Keeper of the die. Keeper of the die? It's not my fault. It's the die. It is the die. There's a reason we made that. That is a real email address oh, now, by the way. Man, the die at BoardGamersAnonymous.com. If you have problems with any of these rolled solutions, you know who to talk to. But go easy on Clarissa. She's a temp. It's, it's not really her fault. Uh, Alrighty, so our number 10 game, Kemet, beats out Cosmic Encounter number 11. So in the final matchup in that bracket, we're going to have Dead of Winter versus Kemet. But first, we have a couple more brackets to get through. Next up, the card and dice bracket. Uh, first matchup here is number one, Android Netrunner, and it's going up against number 13, Imperial Settlers. Drew, what do you think? I'll make this real quick. Uh, if I were in a game store and there were two tables, one of them had uh, Android Netrunner and said, hey, Drew, come play. And someone at the other table said, Imperial Settlers, Drew, come on, play with us. I would pick Android Netrunner. I'd want to sit down and play that. So there's my vote. Uh, 
So I'm going to make mine relatively quick as well. I like both of these games, uh, and so I was a little bit tough to pick them. The way I made my decision, though, is I looked at how many people they seat. Android Netrunner is going to be fun, but it's going to be fun for fewer people than Imperial Settlers will be. And a large part of what I enjoy about board gaming is social interaction, is playing with people, and having more players at the table always makes games more interesting to me. So I'm going to have to go with Imperial Settlers on this. All right, for me, uh, Imperial Settlers is one of my favorite games of last year. Um, I think Android Netrunner is a fine game, but I like the a number of the other living card games a, a bit better. Um, and I think Imperial Settlers is unique. It's fun. It plays really well solo. It has uh, a number of different variants. I know there were some issues we saw in the first couple playthroughs, but I think those are um, small compared to the amount of fun it, it comes with. Um, and it is, you know, a, one of those truly interesting styles of card games. Yes, there's a lot of bits, but the card play is where the game is, and the drafting mechanic is very important to that. So I've played this one dozens of times, which I cannot say about any game from last year, so it's got to be Imperial Settlers. Both outstanding card games, both deserving to be in this area. Imperial Settlers kind of takes it to the next level with the use of all the different tokens, high-quality tokens, and yet I, I do disagree with Anthony, at least in the sense that I think that the cards that you need to get on your tableau sometimes just don't come up because I think there's a problem with the game. I think it's very hard to get cards out there and cycle through your deck. Android Netrunner, on the other hand, is an LCG, and it's about deck building. It's that one-on-one play style. It's the asymmetrical play style. It has a number of different play styles, depending on which side you play. It's just probably a better overall mechanic. It's more well thought out. It, you know, Both of these games are based on previous games. Both of these games play very well. I'm going to go Android Netrunner, because I think that just generally it's a, a more solid game. All right, so we are to the die again. Come Let's on, Clarissa. Take a look. So an odd number will give us, who was first, Android, and even number, Settlers. I swear, it is a two, oh, which man. is an even number, which means that Settlers... I'm okay with that this time. Okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Everyone's okay with Clarissa uh, well, when she tells them what they want to hear. Not yeah, I know, right? <laughs> the listeners aren't going to be happy with that. Well, you know. They can direct their complaints to the diet board gamers. Not. <laughs> oh, man. I do have to disagree on the uh, the game being broken, though. I don't think it's quite broken. I think I, having played it a lot of times, it is, for most decks, it's easy to get the cards that you need once you know how the deck plays. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, we, we played it a couple of times, and then I read a lot of stuff online about it. I like the game a lot. I mean, it would be an instant purchase for me because I love tableau building. I love civilization building. But still, there isn't a lot of opportunities to kind of cycle through the deck. And I think also that asymmetrical gameplay, which I do love, I think it's somewhat problematic. I think the two-player game is almost a little bit better than the four-player game because you're almost stuck to a certain strategy. All righty. So number 13, Imperial Settlers, upsets number one, Android Netrunner. And Drew's right. We'll probably get some emails on that one. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) The next matchup here is number two, Seven Wonders, going up against number three, Race for the Galaxy. It's an interesting one. Drew, what do you think? I don't think it's going to be too controversial if I vote for Race for the Galaxy over Seven Wonders. Uh, Seven Wonders is a great game. Um... One of the flaws, though, if if one person has AP, everybody has to suffer. It's like, 
you, no matter how fast you move through that game, um, it slows you right down. And there's a lot of AP in it. Um, there's also a problem with uh, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer as you go through the three rounds. You start falling behind, you're never going to catch up. Um, some people really know how to maximize their score and run away with it. Uh, I haven't figured that out yet, so I don't like it as much as Race for the Galaxy. You're in the game till the very end. You could draw a card which really gets you some multiples of points right at the very end. And that's what you're always looking for is build up that engine as good as best as possible and try and hope for that big score at the end. So Race for the Galaxy is my choice. Both outstanding games, great card games. Car- both of these card games really define for me at least the tabletop industry being able to just have a deck of cards that plays so many ways to build a tableau wow what a, what a, what great mechanics here where i think these two differ is a couple of things first off and it's a minor thing and i understand that the artwork here seven wonders has outstanding beautiful artwork you have those large player boards that depict your wonder you have a lot of tokens Whereas the you know the base set for race for the um, race for the galaxy is very simple, it's very muted, it's it's kind of a little bit outdated, and then I think in part that's why we have roll for the galaxy because they really needed to update that game. And if roll for the galaxy was here right now, this this competition might be different. But if I'm going to build a civilization and I'm, if I'm going to have AP, it's, it's going to be because I'm building towards something. And with Seven Wonders, each stage builds on the last stage. Race for the Galaxy, you could get those you know, six-point developments in the very beginning and then your hand is kind of full and you can't do anything with them. And then at the end of the game, you might get a hand of cards that are really kind of low-level developments or, or planets and it doesn't really work for you. Seven Wonders is all about tableau building, and it's probably the ultimate tableau building game, and that's what I'm going with. Daniel? All right. Where are they? I'll go. Okay. Give Daniel a final word. (laughs) All right. So for me, uh, this is a very, very close one. I like Seven Wonders a lot. Um, I've played it probably more than any other game on this list in general, um, except maybe Imperial Settlers. But, you know, again, that's that whole solo thing at home. Uh, Seven Wonders comes out almost every time I meet up with a group of people. But that said, uh, Race for the Galaxy has so many infinite possibilities, and the expansions really do add so much to the game, um, except the one. And it has a solo variant, so it automatically wins because of that. So, Seven Wonders, if you build a solo variant, I'll come back to you. But for now, it's got to be Race for the Galaxy. See, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to go Seven Wonders. It's the game that we all played together that brought us together, so I've always got that to fall back on. But it's also a game that I've never had a bad time playing, and there are very few games I can say that about. And it's, I've never had a bad time playing it, no matter who I was playing with either, right? New players, experienced players. It always flows well. All of the expansions I really enjoy... They all add something new to it. I think Seven Wonders is one of the best games out there. I don't think that's an unusual opinion, of course, but I think it's absolutely one of the best games out there. And while Race for the Galaxy is a great game, I just don't think it's of the same caliber. But let's find out what Clarissa thinks. Mm, Law of Averages is going to kill me. Clarissa thinks six, which is an even number. Oh, 
Which means that we are going to give it a win to Race for the Galaxy. Race for the wow, Galaxy. Oh, I finally oh, get one. Oh, God. No. Finally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awful. All right, Daniel. I'll stop bugging you now. You're not cheating. <laughs> God, no. Yeah, I lost one, guys. I lost one. <sighs> one. This Out of four. <sighs> like, it's a pretty... Drew, didn't you win all of them last week? All but the very last one last week. You won yes. like seven out of eight, and yes, now you're exactly. like, ooh. <laughs> I won one out of eight last week. Yeah, that was tough. <sighs> this is brutal, man. Was... All right. So that is number three, Race for the Galaxy, over number two, Seven Wonders. Uh, we have one more bracket left, and we're going to dive into that right now. <laughs> Starting with number one, Pandemic, versus number four, Ticket to Ride. Three of the top four seeds have come through this far. That's pretty good in this in this bracket. That's because these are all solid gateway games. Pandemic, Ticket to Ride, it's hard to make a choice, but I will. Ticket to Ride is and always will be Ticket to Ride. It doesn't change. It never will change. But Pandemic is is one of those evergreen classics like Risk that you can do so much with it. It's malleable in, in best uh, way that risk is and i'll just make my choice by saying this you will never see ticket to ride legacy and that's why that could never be on my list of top gateway games pandemic is my choice if you're looking for a true gateway game while pandemic has a lot to offer and is an outstanding game i still find pandemic to be a little bit of a higher level and i find that intro players to the hobby have a problem trying to manage all the different things you have to do in that game. Ticket to Ride, you have the cards in front of you, you know what you need to build, you can see the tracks in front of you, it's color-based, it's set collection, it's route building. Pandemic, it's a little bit more challenging, it's more of a puzzle, and it often kills you, kills you, and kills you. Like any good co-op should, but nonetheless, it's going to be Ticket to Ride. See, it's interesting because I think the fact that Pandemic is a co-op makes the case for it as a gateway game stronger. Because cooperative games are the only games where you sit down with a bunch of new players and the fact that you have played this game a hundred times before does not mean that they're going to get their butts whooped. It means that you're going to help them win, right? And you can do with a cooperative game something where you're sort of like the... uh, you know, the, the parent running alongside their kid while they're on their training wheels and then you let go of the bike slowly and they ride off and you go, oh, wow, look at them on their own, right? You can do that with a cooperative game like Pandemic and that makes it a really flexible sort of training game to get people into gaming, right? You stop, start them out with a lot of help, a lot of hand-holding and as they get more familiar with it, you lean back and let them go. I think Ticket to Ride is, there's just not a lot to do. I think it's honestly kind of a boring game. I think Pandemic is more interesting. I think it gets people used to the idea of playing in a convivial, friendly way, right? Where everyone's like, oh, ha ha, we lost together, right? It makes it less of a, you know, nasty event. And it's one of the few games that you're going to be able to convince people who know that you play board games all the time to play with you right off the bat because that's scary in a co- uh, any sort of competitive game right you're intimidating in any sort of competitive game but a cooperative game you are the hero <laughs> uh all right for me and we're not gonna have a roll-off unfortunately uh i'm gonna have to agree with uh daniel and drew on this one and pandemic for me is one of those quintessential gateway games um the of the first three i think 
four games I played um, when I got into the hobby. One was Pandemic and one was Ticket to Ride. And the one that I most eagerly wanted to play again uh, in the next time I was there was Pandemic, just because it was so... Like, it got stuck in my head. And it, we lost, of course, but I just kept thinking, like, well, what if we'd done this? Or what if we'd done that? And I've seen more unique imitations of Pandemic as a mechanic over the years than I have of Ticket to Ride. All right, so that's number one Pandemic over number four Ticket to Ride. So we have one more game in our round of 16 here, and that's uh, number seven Mice and Mystics versus number 14 Takedo. You know, one of the ways that we describe a gateway game is family-friendly. You can't, you can't ignore the family aspect of it. Um, and Takedo is a gentle and relaxing journey, but if you bring the kids along, they're going to say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Um, kids, even 12 and up, you know, who can play just about any board game, they're going to be bored with this board game. Whereas... Mice and Mystics is Dungeon Crawl 101. It is the perfect introduction to an entire genre of gaming. And the whole family is going to be in for it. And that's why I think it's the best choice in this matchup. Mice and Mystics. Yeah, Gru, I'm going to echo you there. This is actually the hardest matchup we've done so far for me because I really love both of these games. But the thing that seals the deal, I mean, one, there's the story aspect, which really does bring in family and that sort of thing. But there's also the time that I brought Mice and Mystics down to my friends who don't really game all that often. We sat down, we played one night, and I was like, well, maybe we can set up a weekly game night or something. This was during the summer where we were all kind of free. I said, oh, well, how about tomorrow? How about the next day? And suddenly I had people who wanted to come over to my house like three days in a row just so we could mainline Mice and Mystics. And any game that's just that amazingly appealing and amazingly attractive to new players, that is the gateway. Right? That, that, that defines what a gateway game tries to be. And so I can't vote against Mice and Mystics. It has to be Mice and Mystics. All right, so I have to agree with Daniel Drew again. We're on a roll. Uh, Mice and Mystics is one of my favorite dungeon crawls. And this game, as a gateway for me... Um, I picked up Imperial Assault over Christmas. My wife bought it for me. And I really want to play that with my son. And I know that's going to be a little while. And I also know that Mice and Mystics will be the gateway that gets us there. So it's a game that him and I have already played together. He's not quite four years old. And he understands the basic idea of the game. Although, obviously, I have to run the majority of it. Um, and everybody else I've shown this game to, very quick, relatively easy to teach. There's obviously a lot going on, but... The story pulls you in. The mechanics all make sense. It's all very thematic. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Takedo is an amazing game, too. But as a gateway game, um, it can. there's other games that I would bring to the table if I have a group of new players and I want to introduce them to the hobby. Takedo, as we've mentioned before, is kind of that end-of-the-night relaxation game. It's not the first game you bring out to get everybody excited. And to Drew's point, I probably would not bring this out for my kids. <laughs> well, not it would your be kids. <laughs> Within the next five to six years, not for my kids. Okay. They would be very bored. Um, not not that it's a bad game, but my Mystics would get them much more excited. These are two brand new great games that will fi- definitely find a hole within the top 100 for at least the next 100 days until the next great Gateway gun- games come out. But it's easy to see why everyone loves these games. They're 
They have a simple style, simple mechanic. They bring everyone in, outstanding artwork, gameplay, as Drew said, for both family and friends, whether they're tabletop gamers or not. You can bring kids in to play these games. It's pretty straightforward. Wow, what what such great games. I would like to vote for Takedo because you are starting at one end and you're heading down towards the other end. And each step of the way, something's happening. So in that way, it's a true gateway game. Mice and Mystics does that a little more complicated, but it does do that too. And by having the recording, if it didn't have the recording, I might have to go with Tokaido. But having the recording, having the story gives so much flavor, so much fluff, so much direction to the game. And it brings in gamers because they understand the narrative of the game a lot more. So I'm going to go with Mice and Mystics. Another uh, unanimous vote. All right. So everybody's up for Mice and Mystics. And that finalizes our round of eight, which we'll be doing shortly. Uh, we're going to have Suburbia versus Caverna, Dead of Winter versus Kemet, Imperial Settlers versus Race for the Galaxy, and Pandemic versus Mice and Mystics. Anthony, take us back to the top again. All righty. So we are back with our finals in each bracket. Uh, in the round of 16, we had four roll-offs out of eight matchups. We'll see how many roll-offs we have this time around. Uh, we're going to have four more matchups, and they're going to get us to our final four games for next week, uh, one from each of the different categories. Uh, real quick, first up, the Euro bracket, number nine, Suburbia, versus number two, Caverna. What do you think? Well, Suburbia has been the surprise. It has taken down Terra Mystica. It has taken down Power Grid. But it's time for Suburbia to be taken down by Caverna. Yeah, Caverna by uh, Fair Morgan. I like Suburbia. I love Caverna. All right, so we're at the risk of this one becoming unanimous again. Uh, Caverna is a spectacular game. This is one of the best games I've ever played. So much so that I picked it up after playing it once and have kind of waffled my way through it a couple times, just setting it up on the table to make sure I knew the rules and I'm ready to play the next time it comes out. Uh, Caverna is a fantastic game. Suburbia is awesome, but Caverna just gets everything right. It's so well-refined. Obviously, it's the culmination of 20 years of this guy designing amazing games. Louis Rosenberg has done an outstanding job with Agricola. I love Agricola. It is a different game for me than Caverna. It does not, Caverna does not replace Agricola, but Caverna is a refinement of so many things that you can love about Agricola. And the tableau building, being able to really build a civilization is outstanding. And the components, the artwork, the questing, there's just so much good here. And the fact that this game was a $90 game, I think at the cheapest it was, at least initially, was maybe $80. And it was an instant buy. So it's got to be Caverna. All right, so Caverna takes it unanimously for the Euro bracket. It is the champion there for the Euros. Not surprising. Uh, next up, we have the Americlash bracket. Dead of Winter at number four versus number 10, Kemet. I like both of these games because they combine a couple really cool mechanics, mechanisms in, in each game. And anytime you can do a couple things well in the same game, it's worth buying and keeping. But Dead of Winter has just added so many more layers into one dense little game that uh, the replayability is strong, and I'm going to want to keep coming back to it over and over again. So it's my vote for the top Ameritheme game. 
Yeah, so I'm going to second you here. I think Dead of Winter is a fantastic game. I love Kimmet, uh, but in a sense, Kimmet's almost more standard. Dead of Winter is more innovative. And I also think Dead of Winter is just better. But I do think innovation is something to uh, count on here, right? It's, it's looking forward. So, yeah, uh, I think Dead of Winter is the best game in this bracket, and I'm very happy to see that it made it this far. Both great games, both true Americlash games, does so many things right. But when I'm looking for a true Americlash game, I'm looking for components, I'm looking for miniatures, I'm looking for that real Clash battle, I'm looking for some tableau building. Kemet does pretty much everything right. It's such a surprising game when you get it to the table, and it's just outstanding. The Dead of Winter, great game. The theme is a little bit played out. And and sometimes because you are depending so much on the other players to play their roles well or otherwise the game isn't good, an Americlash game should be good no matter what because it's all about the battles. I'm going with Kemet. All right. I'm going to agree with you, Chris. Uh, I don't see how any game could win the Americlash bracket without miniatures. Come on, guys. <laughs> well, standees. Cardboard standees. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't even know you guys anymore. Come on. Wow, I am uh, authentically surprised to hear this come out this way. <laughs> I know. All right, just like any good Americlash game, it always comes down to the die roll. So, Daniel, let's roll. Right. Oh, God. Here we go. Uh, on an odd number, our first listed, which would be <sighs> Dead, Dead of Winter. Winter wins. On an even, our second Kemet. Oh, I can't even see it. Hold on. Wow, it rolled really far under there. I swear I'm not actually distracting this for attention. I actually can't see the die. <laughs> it is a three, oh, which is an you. odd number. Thank you. And Dead of Winter takes its rightful seat in the throne. Oh, my Lord. Kemet could not have won that bracket. No, no. <laughs> yes, it I could. Would have written, I yes, would have written could. you guys if, if it did. I feel like any game we put in the 64 could have won any of these brackets. They're all good games. They really Everybody are. wins. <laughs> Give them all a trophy. Participation ribbon. Look, this is, yeah. not, this is not a Euro game category. This is an Americlash category. There can be only one. Yes. True, true. It's an oh, elimination bracket. <laughs> Dang it. All right, so Dead of Winter wins the Americlash bracket by a die roll again. This was a Die! very interesting bracket. <laughs> um, next up, we have the card and dice bracket. This time around, we've got Imperial Settlers at number 13 versus number three, Race for the Galaxy. I, I love Race for the Galaxy's pure simplicity. Um, it's the first game I ever played where a single card could be used for three different things. That's that's the brilliance of the design. It streamlined the game. It just basically was a deck of cards, and you could keep track of points on a piece of paper. Real simple. Um, and it's that simplicity that allowed it to be built up through some really cool expansions and one not-so-cool expansion, but a really good, solid, evergreen game that will always be one of my number one card games. Race for the Galaxy. Having voted against this twice, I feel awkward saying this now, but I think it quite clearly goes to Race for the Galaxy. I like space. I like San Juan. If you put those two things together, 
Race for the Galaxy emerges as the beautiful child. And, you know, while I thought Roll was better than Race and I thought Seven Wonders was better than Race, I have to admit that I think Race is better than Imperial Settlers. I don't... Yeah, that's just, that's it. Race for the Galaxy. All right, so Imperial Settlers, again, you know, I've said this multiple times, one of my favorite games from last year. But on a pure merit-based comparison, I... I would have to agree with you guys that Race for the Galaxy is a better game. It has a lot more going for it. It's been around a lot longer, so it's been refined. It has a lot of good expansions for it. It also has a solo play variant, which is very good. So it passes the uh, Anthony test. Um, I do love Imperial Settlers, but I also very much enjoy Race for the Galaxy. It's also a little easier to get to the table with uh, other new players, just because, or other players, just because so many people have played it and so familiar in the in the hobby. So. I'm going to go with Race for the Galaxy as well. Both outstanding games. Love tableau building. Love being able to kind of play your own set of cards to build this wonderful, whether it's a civilization or a civilization in the stars. Once again, I think Imperial Settlers is the type of game that one day will take its place as one of the better, if not best games in this category. But it just has not had the opportunity to have the refinement yet. I'm going to go for Race for the Galaxy and in particular, because its younger brother, Roll for the Galaxy, really does an outstanding job. So being that role is basically race, I'm going to go with Race for the Galaxy. Okay, another unanimous decision. Right. This is easy, guys. <laughs> we got Our one last... more bracket. That's the gateway bracket. We have number one, Pandemic. The only number one seed left in the tournament versus number seven, Mice and Mystics. This is actually a, a really close one for me. Mice and Mystics is a it, it's a genre expanding game. You know, people could fall in love with that and fall in love with an entire genre of games, a significantly sized genre in the board game community. But Pandemic is the kind of gateway game that introduces people to the entire experience of board games. Someone who's never played a game, you you shepherd them through Pandemic and they enjoy it, and they're going to want to play board games for the rest of their lives. It, it's the number one gateway game for me. I'm going to have to disagree with you there, Drew. I'm uh, going to have to go for Mice and Mystics here. I think Mice and Mystics is just more game. I think it's better as a gateway game because it's more uh, open to new players. It's more open to especially younger players. It's And it's also more charismatic than Pandemic, which is kind of a boring game to look at especially compared to the, you know, the little miniatures and the wonderful story of Mice and Mystics. It's also just more game and better game, I think, just in a generic sense. I mean, there's more interesting decisions to make, more interesting stuff to do, and really more uh, of that enjoyable tension, right, that deep investment one has while they're playing a game. It's hard to get that in Pandemic. It is not hard to get that in Mice and Mystics. I have never had a group of players want to play again more rapidly than I have when I played Mice and Mystics with them. And that just has to make seal the deal for me. So Mice and Mystics. Anthony? All right. Uh, I have to agree with Daniel on this one. Mice and Mystics <sighs> is... I know. Mice and Mystics is one of my favorite all-around games in general. Um, and as a, a gateway game, again, it's just a perfect introduction to the dungeon crawl. Uh, getting... You know anybody at that early stage of gaming, especially at a younger age, into that kind of game would have been nearly impossible in the past, and now it's so easy and so much fun. 
Uh, and you can engage people of all ages with this. The storytelling is amazing. The game is amazing. I loved painting the miniatures. And it was uh, all around a, a great experience for me. So Mice and Mystics over Pandemic for me. Chris, help me. <laughs> Where were you when I needed you on my Seven Wonders? <laughs> when my civilization was crashing down drew where were you amongst the stars sure that's where you were you weren't with me you were not with me (laughs) pandemic such a classic outstanding game but i don't know it still it still gives me a hard time to bring people to the table pandemic is such an outstanding game it's a classic gateway game it will always shall be but it's in some ways mathematical, it's some ways a puzzle, whereas Mice and Mystics gives you an experience that brings people into the hobby again and again and again, plays well with children, plays well with adults, and not only brings them to the gaming hobby, but introduces RPGs, which is an accomplishment in and of itself. So I'm going to go with Mice and Mystics. Yeah. All right. I want all the listeners to know that I stood up for pandemic, so don't write to me. Write to them. Anthony, Daniel, Chris. All righty. So that's number seven, Mice and Mystics, over number one, Pandemic. The miniatures made it. I'm going to beat out those stupid cardboard standees yet. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So we have our final four games, and they are going to be from the Euro bracket, Caverna, versus from the Americlash bracket, Dead of Winter, and from the card and dice bracket, Race for the Galaxy, versus from the gateway bracket, Mice and Mystics at number seven. So we're going to do something a little bit different for these this time. As you listen to this episode, you can go to the website and you can vote. You can head over and you can tell us who you think should win the next matchup. So we want to hear what you think, both of these matchups, and then we're going to try to get the poll up again so you can vote on the final. So that's everything for this week. Be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, where you'll be able to vote for the final game for the 2015 Tabletop Madness, and also our guild on BoardGameGeek. Until then, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And until next time, we'll save you a seat at the table. That is if you vote. If you don't vote, then we save the table spot for the die, because the die always has a vote. <laughs> <laughs>